0: Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We are here today to consider four important nominations. Uh, Ms. Paloma uh, Adams-Allen to be a Deputy Administrator for Management and Resources at the Agency for International Development. Dr. Karen Donfrey to be Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasian Affairs. Ambassador Mary Catherine Fee to be Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs and Ms. Anne A. Witkowski to be Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Congratulations to the four of you and your nominations. We appreciate your willingness to serve our country in these capacities, as well as those members of your family, because we recognize that this is a a family sacrifice uh, as well, so we thank them as well. Um, Ms. Adams-Allen, your lifelong dedication to international development and distinguished career of government service, including as Deputy Assistant Administrator at the Latin American Caribbean Bureau of the United States Agency for International Development, I believe makes you eminently qualified for this position. If confirmed, your knowledge and experience as a development professional and your distinguished tenure as the President and CEO of the Inter-American Foundation will be needed to uh as you take the role of Deputy Administrator for Management and Resources at USAID. I'm pleased to see that President Biden's budget aims to restore the value and use of international development and foreign assistance as part of the overall goal of achieving U.S. foreign policy objectives. I know Administrator Power is entirely committed to this vital task, and I appreciated her testimony in the budget last week. I have no doubt you'll share that commitment. Dr. Donfried, uh, your nomination is a testament to the Biden administration's effort to rebuild the transatlantic relationship, which I believe was significantly damaged during the last administration. If confirmed, I believe your knowledge and experience, including as Senior Director for European Affairs at the National Security Council, will serve you and the country well as the Biden administration works to advance the renewed transatlantic relationship. It's imperative that this position be filled as soon as possible, as we need to see forward movement on critical issues, including those related to Russia, Turkey, Belarus, and our support for Ukraine, among others. I look forward to hearing from you about these and other issues. Ambassador Fee, I'm pleased to see you back before the committee. The position you're nominated for to be the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs comes at a critical time for Africa, a continent with enormous Promise and challenges. However, the impacts of the third wave of COVID 19 on top of political and security challenges could roll back years of democratic progress and economic growth. Indeed, the Biden administration faces a series of challenges in Africa from China and Russia, which continue to pursue actions that are inimical to U.S. interests, to conflict, to instability, and a flawed electoral exercise in Ethiopia, to a fragile transition in Sudan which could be destabilizing to the entire Horn of Africa. These are just a few among the many challenges facing Africa and U.S. interests there. In short, the challenges in the region are pressing and vast. I know that you're well equipped based on your experience to carry uh, on and meet those challenges and trust that if confirmed, you will do so with skill and commitment. Ms. Witkowski, your knowledge and experience, including as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Stability and Humanitarian Affairs, will be critical if you are confirmed to be the next Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Indeed, your commitment and expertise with many of today's complex conflicts from Burma, Venezuela, Ethiopia, the Sahel, Yemen, to Afghanistan will be needed as CSO develops long-range strategic policies and plans in order to address ongoing conflicts as well as to prevent future ones. I look forward to hearing from you about how you'll approach this task. In closing, while the four of you have a series of challenges ahead, I'm confident that your commitment and experience will serve you well as you take on these new responsibilities upon confirmation. I look forward to your testimonies and now I turn to the ranking member for his opening remarks.
1: Thank you Mr. Chairman and uh, certainly embrace a number of the issues that uh, are going to be facing these people and thank you each of you for your willingness to serve and your families because they always uh, share the sacrifice. I want to start with the nomination of Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. For starters, I'm concerned the administration uh, has refused to, to use peace of sanctions to shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is a continued aggravation for us, and uh, I'd like to see that resolved. Putin has boasted that its completion will be a victory for Russian power. I would also note that any deal with the Russians would be in violation of U.S. law, and I expect to hear more from you on this topic, uh, Dr. Dunford. On chinese malign influence, Europe is a key partner. I've been encouraged to see the increased U.S.-European discussions on working together to combat China's actions. In Georgia, I'm increasingly worried by steps backward. In the past weeks, more than 50 journalists were beaten. One of them died from uh, his injuries, and several judges were pushed onto the Supreme Court in contravention of the uh, April 19th agreement. I know Senator Shaheen shares uh, my concerns in that regard and we've had a number of discussions on that. I hope you will uh, work to address the issues with Georgia's government. Uh, Ukraine remains a big focus on the Hill. We're disappointed to see the administration refusal to send additional help to Ukraine this spring in order that they might defend themselves from their belligerent neighbor. I hope you'll address this today. On to the nomination of Assistant Secretary for African Affairs. The Biden administration has stated that Africa is a priority, but it's unclear where Africa fits in that priority list. First, I'm troubled by the conflict and humanitarian situation in Tigray. However, I'm concerned that the U.S. is so focused on the Tigray crisis that it's ignoring the significant challenges to peace democracy uh, we face across Ethiopia. This is a complex challenge, I get that. I look forward to hearing how we navigate Ethiopia's challenges and the other crises across the Horn of Africa, which is becoming more and more of a uh, focus and a crisis. Aside from Ethiopia, I remain deeply concerned about the lack of initiative uh, the international community has shown, including our European, French, and African partners in pushing for a resolution to the crisis in Cameroon, as well as uh, corruption challenges by the regimes in Zimbabwe and South Sudan. African countries are crucial partners in our fight to combat malign Chinese influence. The United States remains the top contributor uh, of health and humanitarian assistance to Africa, but we must do more to commit ourselves to building strong economic and security partnerships with our African allies. Uh, Next, we have the uh, nomination of Assistant Secretary of State uh, for Conflict and Stabilization Operations. Like many, I'm concerned by this administration's response to the crisis unfolding in Afghanistan. It is clear that the administration had no plans in place to manage the withdrawal and provide for the people that worked side by side uh, with our troops. President Biden publicly stated that his administration was, quote, working closely with Congress to change the authorization legislation in order to expedite the processing of Afghan special immigrant visas. But I have yet to see such outreach on the specific legislative fixes uh, they are seeking. Finally, we have the nomination of a deputy administrator to the USAID for management and resources. U.S. Uh, foreign assistance can help advance the national security, economic, and humanitarian interests in the United States but it must be thoughtfully targeted and designed to ensure greatest possible impact. The the responsibility for aligning roughly two-thirds of the U.S. foreign assistance budget uh, with the uh, strategic objectives of the United States overseas falls here. I'm eager to hear about modernization of USAID's workforce and operations and stretch the aid dollars further so we can save lives and advance U.S. interests. We have a lot to cover today, and that a yield back,
0: thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Okay, so we'll turn to our nominees. Uh, all of your statements will be included in the record without objection. Uh, we'll start uh, with Ms. Adams Allen and move down the uh, the, uh, the aisle as uh, as I introduce you. Uh, so the floor is yours, Ms. Adams
2: Allen. Thank you, Senator. Chairman Menendez. Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be Deputy Administrator for Management and Resources of the United States Agency for International Development. I would like to thank the President and Administrator Power for their trust in me. I'm grateful for the opportunity to return to USAID, an agency dear to my heart at a moment when its leadership and development expertise are so urgently needed. I'm here today before, y- before you because of the love and support of so many. My mother, Emily Adams, a proud Minnesotan who instilled in me a deep sense of fairness and justice. My father, Llewellyn Adams, who I credit for my strong Jamaican work ethic. My husband, Travis Allen, still the best human I know. My daughters, Priya and Emily whose creativity and empathy inspire me every day, and a network of extended family, friends, colleagues, and neighbors spanning the globe. Thank you all. My international development and diplomacy experience started early, informed by the duality of my upbringing, summer spent in the relative wealth and safety of my mother's community in the United States, and the school year spent in the beauty and vulnerability of my father's home country in Jamaica. It was in the jarring journey back and forth between these worlds that I settled on what I wanted to do with my life, pay forward the incredible privilege I have as an American by working to fuel hope and opportunity in communities like the one that helped raise me. This early decision informed my 20 plus years working in the foreign assistance arena, primarily in Latin America and the Caribbean. During a decade in policy and programming roles at the Organization of American States, I saw the potential of multilateralism to calm tensions between neighboring countries and mobilize regional support for humanitarian crises like the 2010 earthquake. But it's been my experience in the federal government, serving in leadership and management positions at USAID, and now as head of the Inter-American Foundation, where I've been able to effect the change I dreamed of as a child. During a decade of public service, I've had the honor of investing in and learning from young people bravely building peace in El Salvador, smallholder farmers in Colombia selling their coffee to global corporations, and proud grandmothers in Haiti financing businesses through their savings and loans associations. Throughout my career, I have demonstrated an ability to successfully manage complex operations, effectively steward resources, create and lead diverse purpose-driven teams, and advance reforms designed to enhance the impact and sustainability of development investments. And I have done so in a bipartisan manner, recognizing and respecting Congress's role as an equal partner in US foreign assistance. If confirmed, I will drop on this experience to effectively oversee USAID's management and resource needs. As the US government's lead global development agency, USAID needs to be nimble enough to respond to an ever-evolving set of Geopolitical challenges and crises, and to do so with the management and oversight commensurate with the responsibility given to it by the American people through Congress. If confirmed, my top priority will be positioning USAID to further maximize its development impact by one, better aligning strategy and resources to develop, deliver results, and two, expanding the agency's partner base to include more non traditional US and local implementing partners with strong in-country knowledge, expertise, and a commitment to sustainability. In order to maximize impact, we must support and invest in USAID's greatest strength, its people. If confirmed, my focus will be on making sure the agency has a staff equipped with the right tools and bolstered by a supportive culture, one that recognizes and responds to the outsized demands (coughs) placed on USAID and embraces the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And finally, if confirmed, I will prioritize enhancing USA's ability to rapidly respond and take advantage of emerging opportunities as conditions change on the ground. There are multiple layers to this goal, but perhaps most important is building on prior efforts to enhance the agency's procurement capabilities so that it programs resources in a faster, more responsive manner. Again, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, uh, Dr. Donfrey.
3: Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today. I have long valued my bipartisan collaboration with this committee, dating back to 1991 when I began a decade of work on Europe at the Congressional Research Service. If confirmed, it would be a pleasure to work with you from the State Department on issues I care passionately about and on which the United States is and shall remain a force for good. It is an honor to be nominated by President Biden to serve under Secretary Blinken as the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. If confirmed, I will work enthusiastically to serve the American people and advance the interests of the United States, to reinvigorate our alliances and partnerships, to strengthen democracy in Europe and Eurasia, and to address the challenges we face around the world. My greatest support, if confirmed for this position, will come from my husband, Alan Uncheriner, our daughter, Hannah, and our son, Michael. They are an endless source of love and inspiration. Although born in New York City, I spent my early childhood in Heidelberg, where my father, a theologian, did his doctoral work, and my mother worked as a nurse at US Army headquarters. That experience gave me the gift of speaking German fluently, which in turn allowed me two decades later to complete a master's degree in Munich, where I met Alan, a fellow American studying abroad. Transatlantic relations have been an integral part of my life story. Professionally, I served in the George W. Bush administration as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff and in the Obama administration, both as the National Intelligence Officer for Europe and as the Senior Director for European Affairs at the National Security Council. For the past seven years, I have led the German Marshall Fund of the United States. If confirmed, I will have the responsibility and the honor and joy of leading EUR covering 50 countries with 79 posts and 12,000 hardworking, dedicated public servants. I will treat each and every one of them with the care and respect they deserve, as well as work energetically to recruit and develop more diverse talent for the Bureau. President Biden defines his number one job as ensuring that America's foreign policy benefits the American people and the American middle class. I am eager to support him in achieving this goal, including by revitalizing our alliances and partnerships. The strength of America's alliances is one of our greatest assets. Whether we are confronting the COVID-19 pandemic, economic or social inequality, climate change, corruption, threats to energy security, an aggressive Russia, an increasingly assertive China, cyber threats, or technological competition, the United States is most effective when we cooperate with our allies. Europe is home to many of our closest allies and partners. Together, we must stand firm against Russia's broad range of destabilizing actions while recognizing there are areas of mutual interest on which we might cooperate. Allies and partners must work together to blunt the Kremlin's attempts to undermine democracies and democratic institutions. We must confront Russian aggression against its neighbors by standing with the people of Ukraine, Georgia, and Belarus. And we must stand up for universal human rights, including in Russia. The Kremlin's persecution of political opponents, such as Alexei Navalny, remains deeply disturbing. Additionally, we must work with our allies to counter an assertive China in the political, diplomatic, economic, military, and technological domains. How we manage our relationship with China is the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century. We must work to preserve the free and open rules-based order we built together with our allies seven decades ago in the wake of World War II. The Marshall Plan remains one of the most compelling examples of the United States exercising enlightened leadership. But 2021 is not 1947. We must modernize our alliances to meet new challenges. Secretary Blinken has made clear that while we applaud the significant progress many NATO allies have made in improving defense investments, we need to do more. The common threats we face demand it. Allies share values and interests, but we will not always agree. To manage those differences requires trust. If confirmed, I will work to deepen that trust to achieve policy successes that advance US interests. If confirmed, I will seek to deepen cooperation between EUR and this committee to ensure our diplomacy delivers for the American people. I look forward to your questions, and thank you for your consideration.
0: Thank you very much. Ambassador Fee.
4: Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, Distinguished members of this committee, I am honored to be President Biden's nominee for the post of Assistant Secretary for African Affairs and grateful to the President and Secretary Blinken for their confidence. I began my career as a public servant in these halls in the office of Senator Pat Moynihan. Senator Moynihan kept only two documents on his desk, the U.S. Constitution and the U.N. Charter. He inspired my career in the Foreign Service and taught me an abiding respect for this institution and this committee. My career in foreign policy began in Nairobi, Kenya, at the United Nations Environment Program. In Kenya, I was introduced to the talent and generosity of the African people. Kenyan politics were also my first exposure to the enduring challenges of governance, security, and sustainable development. Applying US diplomacy to effectively meet such challenges has been the dominant theme of my career. I thank this committee for its bipartisan recognition of the growing political, economic, and cultural power of the diverse countries in sub-Saharan Africa. It is up to the State Department to translate this recognition into respectful partnerships that advance our shared interests, values, and aspirations. If confirmed, I will work to support President Biden's agenda to expand the quantity and quality of our engagement with African governments, institutions such as the African Union, and critically, African publics. To stand up to the threat of autocracy, the President has charged us with demonstrating that democracy is the best system to meet the challenges of our interconnected world. Africans agree and are raising their voices to set new destinies for their countries, as we see in Nigeria. The bravery of the Sudanese people in demanding a civilian-led government is another extraordinary example. Across the continent, we will reinvigorate our focus on human rights, accountability, and good governance. President Biden has declared the fight against corruption, especially the theft of public assets for private gain, to be a core national security interest. We see a direct correlation between African governments that are authoritarian and the incidents of internal conflict, displacement, and migration. Many are contending with an active threat from the Islamic State and other violent extremists like al-Shabaab in Somalia. Diverse societies struggle to uphold inclusive and equitable power-sharing arrangements. and collaboration with regional and international partners, tailored U.S. diplomatic development and security assistance can play a critical role to support peace and security. This imperative is driving our current intensive effort to urge all parties to the conflict in Ethiopia to implement an immediate and unconditional ceasefire to put a halt to atrocities against civilians. Climate change also threatens stability. Desertification in the Sahel disrupts farming and has displaced hundreds of thousands, and reckless exploitation threatens the rainforest in the Congo Basin and the continent's biological diversity. It is in our mutual interest to work together on environmental sustainability. Africa is the fastest growing and the youngest continent. By 2050, one in four persons in the world will be African. Workforce development and job creation will be necessary to tap the ambitions of the youth bulge. We are committed to expanding two-way trade and investment and to advancing the regional goals of the African continental free trade area. Among other strengths, the US private sector offers innovative American options for green energy and digital economies, as well as a commitment to social responsibility. All these priorities are now threatened by the devastating human toll of COVID-19. Consistent with America's generous tradition of investment in Africa's health systems, exemplified by the landmark PEPFAR program, the White House has just announced the donation of 25 million COVID-19 vaccines for Africa. The Development Finance Corporation is also investing in vaccine production in South Africa and Senegal. Mindful of the challenges at home and humble about the challenges in Africa, our best asset will be a dynamic and affirmative U.S. policy agenda that enlists African partners in building free market democracies that offer liberty and prosperity and realize the continent's full potential. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, with the Strategic Competition Act, you have given us our marching orders and new tools. If confirmed, I will commit that U.S. embassies in Sub-Saharan Africa will act to confront the Chinese challenge to the international rules-based order. Finally, and not least, if confirmed, I promise to be a champion of the people of the State Department's Africa Bureau to unleash their full potential with a vigorous commitment to diversity and inclusion and to cultivate the special esprit de corps that has traditionally defined the Bureau. Thank you.
0: Thank you, uh, Ms. Kowsky. <laughs>
5: Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for Conflict and Stabilization Operations and Coordinator for Reconstruction and Stabilization. I'm deeply grateful to President Biden and to Secretary Blinken for the confidence they've placed in me for this nomination. I'm joined here today by my husband, John, and our son, Jack, with our daughter, Elizabeth, watching remotely. I want to underscore how much their love and support means to me, as well as that of my mother, sister, and all my family members. Growing up in the Midwest, I am grateful my parents modeled for me the values of public service. My father served in the Army Corps of Engineers in World War II and as the first chairman of the Illinois State Board of Education, while my mother volunteered for many civic organizations. I have by now had the opportunity to serve in the executive branch across four administrations within the Department of Defense, the Department of State, and on the White House National Security Council staff. While I have held positions outside government as well, there has been no greater privilege than to serve alongside the talented and dedicated men and women of the national security community in the civil service, foreign service, the military services, law enforcement, and intelligence. Throughout, I have learned the critical importance of effectively using all U.S. national security tools, including diplomacy, development, and defense, to support U.S. policy priorities and advance U.S. interests and values. From my experience pursuing conventional arms control in Europe at the end of the Cold War to advancing counterterrorism policies and programs in the post 9-11 period to supporting the Department of Defense response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, I have learned that the US government is most effective when integrating our policies, programs, and activities to work at common purpose. That is a key lesson I intend to bring to my position as Assistant Secretary, if confirmed. The Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, or CSO, has a vital role to play in developing and carrying out US conflict prevention and stabilization policy and programs, working in close cooperation with USAID and the Department of Defense. Preventing conflict is hard, and outcomes can be tough to measure. Yet when we do not address instability at the front end, too often we find ourselves having to address it in different, more costly ways at the back end. The strategic environment for the CSO mission is growing more challenging. The number and duration of violent conflicts is increasing. Democracy is backsliding for the 15th straight year, and authoritarianism is on the rise. We see territory controlled by governments being reduced as non-state armed actors gain ground. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken a toll on populations globally. The displacement of people is at a recorded high. Climate change, corruption, gender inequality, and the rapid spread of disinformation pose additional underlying challenges. Therefore, if confirmed, I will place priority on strengthening the Bureau's contributions to the U.S. government's effectiveness in meeting these challenges. Policies and best practices should be regularly adapted, drawing from lessons learned. We will deepen and renew U.S. partnerships on these issues, bilaterally and with multilateral organizations to advance common objectives. And we must work collaboratively with civil society. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the members of this committee including those who have been instrumental in providing new tools to break the costly cycle of conflict. Among those tools are the Global Fragility Act of 2019 and the Elie Wiesel, Genocide and Atrocities Prevention Act of 2018, as well as the Women, Peace, and Security Act of 2017, all bipartisan legislation. CSO will exercise leadership working with other State Department bureaus and interagency partners to advance their implementation together with the 2018 Stabilization Assistance Review. And as I consider our plans, we will identify how the work of CSO can reinforce support for democratic values and human rights at the heart of our foreign policy, That work must be anchored in understanding how Russia's malign efforts undermine democracies and exploit instability and the geostrategic challenge of China's ambitions. Finally, I will be dedicated to building a strong workforce, one that is committed to advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you again for this opportunity to lead the CSO Bureau to advance American interests and values toward a more peaceful and safer world. I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, thank you all very much. So so first, I have a series of questions on behalf of the committee as a whole, and a simple yes or no to the question by each of you uh, is what we request. Um, These are questions that speak to the importance of this committee's place on responsiveness of all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So with a simple yes or no answer, do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Ambassador? Yes. Yes. Do you commit to keep the committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes.
5: Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Did I hear a yes from you, uh, doctor? Yes. Okay. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed not just providing notification after the fact
3: yes yes Yes. Yes.
0: and do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff yes Yes. all right thank you all uh so we'll start around with five minute questions i'll start with myself uh there's a lot of room uh, uh, a lot of uh waterfront to cover here with all four of you so It'll be difficult, but let me start by focusing with you, Dr. Donfried, on a series of issues that I am very much concerned about. Section 231 of CATSA is a provision that imposes sanctions on entities that conduct significant transactions with the Russian defense and intelligence sectors. Uh, I helped write that law. Do you agree that Section 231 of CAATSA has prevented significant funding from going to the Russian defense and intelligence sectors, and do you support its full implementation?
3: Chairman Menendez, it is such an honor to appear before the committee. And I will turn to your question, but I don't want to let this opportunity pass to thank you for your support of GMF. And as you were giving your opening comments earlier, I had a flashback to 2019 when you delivered an important keynote speech about the importance of transatlantic relations on GMF stage in Brussels. And I just want to thank you for not only your leadership of this committee, but also being such an important public voice on these issues. You mentioned your role on Katsa and I would absolutely agree with you that that legislation has been important in pushing back against Russian influence and countering its malign activities and if confirmed I would indeed commit to the full implementation of Katsa.
0: Very good. Do you commit to regularly engaging with me in efforts to ensure its full implementation?
3: Chairman Menendez, if confirmed, I would look forward to working closely with you on its full implementation. Now,
0: what do you think about or sanctions on Turkey unless Ankara gets rid of its Russian S-400 system?
3: Chairman Menendez, I would say that we have to keep sanctions on Turkey for as long as it has the S-400s.
0: All right. So uh, let me turn to a few other things. Uh, The administration has yet to impose congressionally mandated sanctions in response to the attempted murder of anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny as required under the Chemical and Biological Weapons Act. These sanctions were due on June the 2nd. I'll note that they were pending since before in the past administration. Neither have yet acted on it. If confirmed, will you commit to briefing us on why the administration continues to ignore the law?
3: Chairman Menendez, I find Russia's use of chemical weapons chilling and shocking. And if confirmed, I will follow the law, and I will stand up to Russia's reckless and aggressive behavior, and I will look forward to the opportunity to consult with you in so doing.
0: Thank you. Now, let me turn to the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, This is an increasingly important, uh, I think, uh, part of the world. We passed the Eastern Mediterranean Security and Partnership Act, um, which I think uh, enhanced our relationships with critical countries in the region, Greece, Cyprus, Israel, to mention some, uh, and creating a new paradigm in the eastern Mediterranean on both energy and security. Uh, but we, f- we wake up today uh, to see uh, a statement uh, by President Erdogan of Turkey uh, with reference to Cyprus, Uh, saying that peace talks on the future of ethnically divided ciphers can take place only between two states, only between two states. Now, this is in violation of U.N. Security Council resolutions, of Security Council Resolution 550 that called upon members to not recognize uh, the, the government in the north, that calls for Verosha to come under U.N. administration, and that considers any attempt to resettle Varosha by other than its inhabitants to be inadmissible. And it further violates resolution, UN Resolution 789 that called for a significant reduction in foreign troops, that called for UN peacekeepers to be deployed to Varosha uh, and called for a recommitment to the peace process. Erdogan is violating all of the UN Security Council resolutions He is in the north of Cyprus today, instigating uh, and creating a challenge to a country that is part of the European Union. Now, I will say that over uh, several administrations, we have been rather passive, from my view, uh, about this engagement. And all we see is Erdogan continuing to encroach, encroaching in the exclusive economic zone of not only Cyprus, seeking to do so with Greece, uh, it has uh, played a, in my view, a nefarious role in a variety of things uh, in the region, and unless we take an assertive role and push back, we are going to find ourselves with a significant challenge. Now, uh, I'd like to hear from you if you were to be confirmed, well, what role you would take, what position you would take as it relates to these issues.
3: Chairman Menendez, thank you for your engagement on the Eastern Med. It's made a real difference. And I have been following the breaking news from Cyprus as I entered this hearing room and this latest announcement by the Turkish Cypriot leader and by Turkish President Erdogan about the Turkish Cypriots taking control over parts of Rosia is exactly part of the narrative you're talking about. This is a move that is clearly inconsistent with UN Security Council resolutions. I don't know if the US government has yet issued a statement about this, but I am certain this action will be condemned. And these actions are provocative. They are destabilizing for the region. And they are an impediment to any settlement uh, for Cyprus that would be on the basis of a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation. And if I were to be confirmed, I would want to work closely with you on this. In this particular case of Verosha, I think that we need to refer the situation to the UN Security Council. We need to encourage the international community to give a strong response to this action. We also need to work to de-escalate tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean. And I do appreciate your engagement on this.
0: So I, I have your commitment that if you're confirmed, this will be one of your priorities in your portfolio.
3: Yes, chairman, it would.
0: Thank you very much. Senator Rich. Thank you, Mr.
1: Chairman. And I certainly want to associate myself with those remarks regarding Erdogan and uh, uh, his uh, uh, actions throughout the globe. Um, Ms. Uh, Donfried, I, I want to start with uh, our uh, relationship with our friends in Europe. and. Uh, particularly as it uh, relates to both of our, ours and Europe's relationship with China. Uh, one of the ways as we push back on the Chinese challenge is it's going to take uh, real partners to do that. Uh, no country is going to be able to do it alone. Uh, if we put our population, Europe's population together, we're still only at about a third of what the Chinese population is. Uh, There are because we have common and shared values with our uh, European allies uh, It's the most natural uh, Alliance there is to uh, push back against China. What do you I I authored a report on this and I think others have uh, Given speeches on it and also done reports on it What are your thoughts on uh, how we can work together with China or excuse me with Europe to uh, push back on the challenges? We're going to get from China
3: Ranking Member Risch, thank you for that question. I have read your November 2020 report, and I would commend it. The comprehensiveness and breadth of the view you took on how the United States can work more closely with Europe on these key challenges in the relationship with China, I think in many ways is pathbreaking. And I would commit to you that I would look forward to working with you on how we flesh out what you called a concrete agenda for transatlantic cooperation on China. I think there is no better moment for us to be doing this because I think Europe understands today much more than it has over the past decade, the challenge China poses. And when President Biden made the trip to Europe last just last month, and at the G7, at the NATO summit, at the U.S.-EU summit, we saw this commitment on the part of our allies to work with us on the agenda. I think that we can put U.S. diplomatic muscle to good effect here. Thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate that, and I think uh, we've all got to commit ourselves to uh, – Getting China to comply with international norms and uh, rule of law and enforcement of rule of law, and if we don't, uh, it's going to be a long 21st century for all of us uh, if we don't uh, if we don't do that. Let's turn to Georgia for a minute. Um, myself and other members of this committee have been disappointed in uh, what's been happening in Georgia. Uh, Senator Shaheen and I were there when they had their elections in October of 2012 which we thought was a new dawn and a, and a new beginning and uh uh after that uh we've been regularly disappointed uh, as as to what happens there and they they come to Washington DC all the time the different parties and each of them tries to uh uh try to engage us and get us to take sides in their uh uh in their political maneuvering which which every country does. Uh, and we keep telling them that uh, they've got to resolve this themselves. We're not going to take sides in this. Um, but um, they're not making much progress. What, you, know, it's, it, you, you get to a point where you wonder uh, whether or not it isn't time to just reevaluate where you are with this. What, what are your thoughts on, on Georgia?
3: Thank you, Ranking Member Risch. And I'm grateful to you and Senator Shaheen for that trip that you made. And I also would point to the CODEL that Senator Shaheen, Senator Portman took to Georgia quite recently. And I think that broad bipartisan engagement is critical in the relationship. If confirmed, I would continue to push for the full and prompt implementation of the agreement that was signed on April 19 and urge all parties in Georgia to support that agreement. And I cannot underscore enough how important electoral reform and judicial reform is for Georgia. As you well know, Georgia has made substantial strides to strengthen its democracy. But it has much more distance to travel. And I will press for them to cover that distance. At the same time, I would reaffirm U.S. support for Georgia's territorial integrity and sovereignty and continue to support for Georgia's integration in the Euro-Atlantic community, which is tied to the strength of Georgia's democracy. And I would look forward to working with you on these issues. Well,
1: thank you. I certainly appreciate those thoughts. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Senator Coons.
6: Uh, thank you, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Risch, and thank you to our nominees today, and particularly to your families uh, who have supported you in your careers in foreign services so far. Uh, Dr. Donfried, if I might, um, I just I want to associate myself with the concerns raised by the chairman about um, Turkey's um, nefarious role both in Cyprus and in the region, and my concerns about that. We'll have a hearing about Turkey, I believe, uh, tomorrow. where We'll explore that more thoroughly. Um, and uh, the Ranking Member raised concerns about China that I might well have just echoed, but I'd like to ask you specifically about the path forward in US-German relations. President Biden just welcomed uh, Chancellor Merkel to the White House. Um, We've long enjoyed a close and positive relationship. There are upcoming elections. I think Germany is one of the central um, powers in all of Europe, one of our core allies, one of the most important nations in the world in terms of sharing our values and uh, an economy built on advanced manufacturing. What do you see as the future of US-German relations And how does our work with them in Europe around um, collective security um, and in the rest of the world in terms of pushing back on China um, have positive and negative aspects? How do you intend to navigate all this?
3: Senator Coons, thank you very much for that question. And I remember being at a side event at the Munich Security Conference with you Mm -hmm. uh, in Germany. And I am mindful of how very knowledgeable you are about these issues as well. As you know, Germany is a critical partner and ally of the United States. It is, of course, the largest and wealthiest member of the European Union. And we just saw Chancellor Merkel visit President Biden last week, where the discussion based on the press conference seemed to cover many of the issues you just referred to. There is an election in Germany on September 26. So as we saw last week, in many ways, this was a farewell visit by Angela Merkel as chancellor after 16 years in office. So we are all expecting change in this relationship. It may well be that her party, the center-right party, maintains the chancellery, but the coalition is likely to look different. And that will matter for German policy particularly with regard to countries like China and Russia, where if you had the Greens in coalition, I think you would see a greater sensitivity to the human rights violations that we see those countries make. So I think it's an exciting moment for the relationship with Germany. While on the one hand, we can celebrate what has been, I think there will be opportunities for the US government to forge and deepen cooperation on issues like China. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And
6: I'm looking forward, hopefully, to participating in the Munich Security Conference again with um, the leadership of this committee and many other colleagues. Ambassador Fee, if I might, uh, great to see you again um, since um, we last visited in uh, Juba in 2017. Uh, congratulations on your nomination. There's uh, so much to discuss across the continent. Let me just bear down on on a few things quickly, if I might. Um, since my visit to Ethiopia a few months ago uh, on behalf of our president, the situation in Tigray and the U.S. bilateral relationship with Ethiopia has deteriorated significantly. Um, could you just uh, briefly outline your plans to make progress in um, opening up uh, humanitarian relief, uh, making progress towards a ceasefire and then, God willing, peace uh, and some reconciliation in Tigray, um, and what you think might be the path uh, towards accountability <clears throat> for those who've committed um, human rights violations uh, and for possibly rebuilding the U.S. Ethiopia relationship on the other side of this, if possible.
4: Thank you, Senator. And it's an honor and a privilege for me to see you again uh, in this environment. Um, I want to thank you and other members of the committee, including ranking member Risch who introduced a resolution on Ethiopia for the efforts you have made uh, to make clear uh, U.S. concerns. Uh, about the situation that has resulted uh, from the uh, conflict in Tigray. Your efforts have been instrumental in making sure that all parties to the conflict understand that the United States urgently seeks an immediate end to hostilities, unconditional humanitarian access, accountability for atrocities, and a new course to achieve the political and economic reforms sought by the Ethiopian people. And if confirmed, I'm committed to using all available tools in partnership with this committee, to achieve those critical objectives and to working with you to help Ethiopia get back on track. Um, The prime minister started his premiership uh, with a positive direction, uh, with important rhetoric uh, that was responsive to the desire of the Ethiopian people for economic and political reforms. That uh, initial positive start has gone badly off track, uh, and it's in our interest to uh, work across the political spectrum in Ethiopia to get it back on track, both for the immediate concern for the uh, civilians who are suffering, uh, but also so that Ethiopia can regain its leadership role in the horn. Thank Thank
6: you. you. Um, Thank you, Ambassador. And Mr. Chairman, could I continue or should I? I have a number of additional questions. I didn't know if you're doing a second round or not.
0: Did you say you have 100 additional questions? A few. A very few. A very few. Because I have at least 100. So... uh... Uh, actually, Maybe too- you're
6: happy to let you go on for a little Thank bit. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your forbearance. Um, if I might, uh, Ms. Witkowski, um, the Global Fragility Act is, a, a I think, promising new tool.
2: Um,
6: there are many areas of fragility. Um, Ambassador Fee and I might have gone on at greater length if we had the opportunity about the Sahel and about Mozambique and other places where um, there are significant conflicts. The CSO Bureau has an important role to play in the implementation of the Global Fragility Act that Senator Graham and I wrote and uh, was signed into law last uh, December, and it it tries to come up with um, strategies that will prevent instability. Can you just briefly share uh, your vision for how you will employ this new tool?
5: Senator Coons, thank you very much, and thank you so much for your leadership on this important issue and for providing the opportunity of this new tool uh, to, to, the, to the U.S. government to move forward on the complex and difficult challenges of addressing fragility. Um, I think uh, the, the Global Fragility Act maps an important new way of doing business on fragility with its 10-year commitments, its emphasis on solutions being locally led, its requirements for tighter integration among bureaus, agencies, the field, and Washington, If confirmed, I see that CSO will play a leadership role in the day-to-day implementation of the Global Fragility Act implementation, uh, one of coordination, uh, working with all uh, relevant agencies who are participating in moving forward to implement the act in supporting our embassies, working with civil society. And that process will nest to the higher level process that you have mandated under the steering committee in the act. I look forward to drawing on my many years of leading large agency and interagency efforts uh, to move forward successfully uh, with its implementation. And uh, I can assure you that implementing the Global Fragility Act will be a high priority for me.
6: Thank you, Ms. Woodcast. My last question for Ms. Adams-Allen. You've uh, been involved in the Inter-American Foundation. Um, Ambassador Fee will be on the board of the Um, Africa Development Foundation, both of them relatively small, agile, responsive. One of my real concerns is about increasing localization and flexibility of our assistance programs. I just visited Guatemala and had a chance to um, visit um, a a shelter for trafficked children, a site that I know Samantha Power, the administrator, also visited. Um, I'm really concerned about the lack of um, credible partners um, for us to work with in a number of the countries. Um, in Central America and in other places in the world. Um, What is your strategy for increasing the localization of assistance programs so that we're not solely reliant on government partners? What would you think about piloting that in Central America, where um, I think we are genuinely constrained in terms of the quality of the government partners we have available to do robust development projects with?
2: Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, I couldn't agree more about the need to localize (coughs) U.S foreign assistance and to and make sure that it is sustainable and it is really locally owned. As you mentioned, this is precisely what the Inter-American Foundation does. And um, it, it is my contention that there are actually numerous potential local partners across um, the world, but I know in particular, in, particularly in Central America, that um, USAID could tap into a pipeline of existing vetted tested local partners who are working on issues of livelihoods, crime prevention, peace building, and governance in the affected communities. In terms of a strategy, um, you know, if confirmed, I think it will be important for USAID to build on existing efforts, not only looking at the model of the USADF or IAF, but also building on the new partners initiative and the local works program that they have been testing at USAID. I think it's going to be crucial to streamline the um, procurement processes at USAID so that small local organizations can have access to partnership potentials with USAID. Third, I think it's going to be crucial to strengthen the capabilities within USAID, in particular the technical staff and the contracting staff who are the ones who are going to need to support local organizations.
6: Thank you very much. Thank you to the panel. Thank you for your forbearance, Mr. Chair.
0: Uh, Senator Ben Holland.
7: Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch. Uh, congratulations to all of you on your nominations. Uh, Dr. Donfried, um, it's good to see you. It's good to catch up with you a little bit uh, the other day. Uh, you know, One of the key responsibilities, I think, of this portfolio you have will be to work with our European partners to counter China's uh, use of unfair unfair economic uh, policies uh, and trade policies uh, to establish a set of agreed-upon rules of the road. Um, And I know that's going to be part of what you're you're focused on. Uh, I want to also associate myself with the comments the chairman made regarding CATSA uh, and the importance of fully enforcing CATSA and uh, making sure that, uh, you know, Turkey continues to see those sanctions applied uh, because of the purchase of the S-400s. Uh, I, I heard in your uh, response to uh, Chairman Menendez uh, a reference to Erdogan's President Erdogan's visit to Cyprus today, uh, which, of course, uh, is the anniversary of the illegal uh, Turkish invasion of Cyprus. Uh, and he's taking some very provocative uh, steps, uh, including... Uh, talking about resettling parts of uh, Varosha, which would be a gross violation of numerous uh, United Nations security resolutions and uh, U.S. policy statements um, with respect to not changing the status quo, except for through a negotiated uh, settlement. Um, Senator Menendez and I, and Senator Rubio and others, uh, sent a letter to President Biden uh, last week on this issue. it has now come to pass. So, in addition to uh, just making strong statements condemning the action, I think it is important that we work with our uh, European allies in the EU uh, to look at other sanctions uh, that can be imposed for the violation of uh, law here, rule of law. Uh, President Biden has sort of recentered U.S. policy on uh, rule of law. So do you agree that um, it's important to stand firm uh, together with our partners in the EU on this violation?
3: Senator Van Halen, thank you for taking the time last week to meet with me. I appreciated that. And to your question, yes, I do agree we should work closely with the European Union, with our European allies on how we push back against this. I think we'll be stronger for doing so. And I also look forward to working closely with you and with the chairman, if confirmed, on these critical issues around stability and peace in the eastern Mediterranean.
7: I appreciate that. We're going to be having a hearing. I know the the chairman's organized a hearing tomorrow on on Turkey specifically, so we'll have a greater chance to talk about that. But uh, we just see this series of very provocative moves um, in Cyprus and the eastern Mediterranean, also walking away from the parameters of a, a bizonal federation that had defined the the talks uh, for uh, peace in Cyprus. Um, Ambassador Fee, um, if I could, uh, you have a huge portfolio. Look forward to working with you on all the issues, including trying to really increase um, U.S. uh, investment uh, in Africa. My question relates specifically to Sudan. Senator Coons and I visited Sudan, I think, back in May now. um, And... Sudan, of course, is one of those countries where in a world where we see retrenchment and people moving in the wrong direction on issues of democracy and rule of law, Sudan's a bright spot. And I I know you agree that we should do everything we can to support their transition from dictatorship to democracy. Um, At the end of June, uh, Prime Minister Hamdak gave a very important speech. and one of the things he focused on was the importance, the urgent importance of consolidating the military, which consists, as you know, of uh, various militia, including the RSF, under a unified uh, command, and that command be under civilian control. Um, the U.S. continues to have a law in place based on the Bashir, Bashir government coup decades ago that limits our ability to engage Uh, with the armed forces through security assistance. Uh, Would you agree that we should look at ways of changing that, given the fact that we now have seen a peaceful revolution and where the United States could play, I think, a constructive role, carefully, but a constructive role in helping uh, Sudan uh, integrate and consolidate its uh, military under unified command under civilian control?
4: Senator, it's an honor and pleasure to see you again, and I thank you for your leadership of the Africa subcommittee, and I thank you for your efforts, such as the recent trip uh, that you took with Senator Koons. Uh, you've perfectly captured, I think, this critical moment in the Sudanese transition. Um, the Senate has already played such a vital role in supporting the transition by giving us the tools, helping to dismantle, as you know, some of the architecture that was put in place during the Bashir regime, and if confirmed, I absolutely commit uh, to review the, the important uh, option you've suggested here today about how we, how we might work more effectively with the security forces. Um, in tandem with the prime minister's announcement, there were also statements made by the military leadership about the importance of working together. So there are real opportunities for us to continue to support this very critical transition, which will have such a transformative impact on the continent. Thank you.
7: Well, thank you. I look forward to working with you. And uh, while it's taken a long time, I know AID is um, finally finalizing uh, its uh, $700 million commitment. So the committee looks forward to working with you as uh, that moves forward as well. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. All right. All uh,
0: right. There are presently no other members uh, seeking recognition, but there are some members, on the, one member on their way here. So I, I have a few extra questions, so I'm just going to pursue them now. Uh, let me go back to you, uh, Dr. Dantred, uh You have a very large universe to cover. So uh, earlier this year, the Biden administration recognized the Armenian genocide. Do you support the administration's decision to recognize the Armenian genocide?
3: Chairman Menendez, I do, and I would like to thank you for your leadership on that issue. You have been a longtime champion of the U.S. government officially recognizing the Armenian genocide, and I think it puts the United States in a very good place to be on the right side of history on this issue.
0: Now, there's another issue in the region that is a little more complicated. Well, that took a long time for us to recognize the genocide, but I'm glad, and I give credit to President Biden for doing so. Uh, given Azerbaijan's aggression last August in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, war, uh, the administration continued the use of waivers for Section nine hundred seven uh, restrictions. I have to be honest with you: uh, in the clear meaning of Section nine hundred seven, as I read it, and not quite, it was quite a stretch uh, to go ahead and waive. Uh, what's your views on that,
3: Chairman Menendez? If I am confirmed. I would look forward to working closely with you on that issue of the waivers for that assistance to Azerbaijan. I think it's critical that we make sure that any support we're giving to Azerbaijan is not in any way affecting the balance of power between Azerbaijan and Armenia and that we are committed to resolution of Nagorno-Karabakh.
0: I appreciate that the uh, the, uh, Azerbaijanis are now interfering in the physical territory of Armenia uh, on a border uh, issue. And it just seems to me they will continue to be aggressive unless they have a clear message that it's not acceptable. Let me turn to, uh, uh, I understand that you've had the chance to review the Ukraine Security Partnership Act. Uh, do you support the legislation which would give increased security assistance to the country?
3: I am grateful for the broad and bipartisan support there is on this committee for U.S. support for Ukraine. And I read with great interest the Act, which has many interesting and important ideas captured in it. And if confirmed, I would very much look forward to working with you on how we can increase our support for Ukraine. Mm -hmm.
0: Finally, uh, last week the British government proposed halting all prosecution of British soldiers and militants involved in three decades of conflict in Northern Ireland which sparked an angry response from fa- victims' families and politicians in Belfast and Dublin. The Stormont House Agreement provides a framework to deal with legacy issues from the Troubles. Do you support the implementation of the Stormont House Agreement as a way to deal with legacy issues?
3: Chairman Menendez, I mentioned earlier that I spent 10 years at the Congressional Research Service, and one of the issues I spent a great deal of time on then was Northern Ireland. And it was a bright time because actually we saw the peace process move forward. And that Stormont House Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement, I think, has to be the basis for U.S. policy toward the island of Ireland to maintain peace there. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Fee, let me ask you, the situation in Tigray and across Ethiopia is rather bleak. The Ethiopian government's unilateral ceasefire does not appear to be getting much traction. And worryingly, it appears to me that we may be entering a new phase of the conflict characterized by the mobilization of ethnic militia and even more mass atrocities. What more can the United States do to get the parties to reach a negotiated ceasefire? If you were to be confirmed, what advice would you be giving?
4: Chairman Minetas, thank you for raising uh, this very uh, disturbing issue, uh, which poses... Uh, such a threat to the civilians of Ethiopia and to the stability of the horn. If confirmed, um, I would enthusiastically endorse the efforts of our Special Envoy, Ambassador Jeff Feltman, who is working right now to uh, mobilize the support of partner nations in Africa, uh, of uh, the partner nations in the Gulf who are engaged in Ethiopia, our partners in Europe, and our partners in the United Nations. This problem requires all of us Uh, pulling together uh, to help Ethiopia stop uh, the current fighting, to stop the spread that you have correctly identified as a genuine threat, um, and to work on a national dialogue uh, to address the political and economic reforms that are so desperately needed?
0: I I think we have to look at if if the type of atrocities that are being reported are, are such, I think we have to look about what are the consequences for such atrocities. If we look away, then, you know, at the end of the day, uh, others in other parts of the world will do it.
4: Uh, Chairman Menendez, I fully agree with that sentiment. We have, as you know, a long-standing and multifaceted partnership with Ethiopia, and there are options for us uh, to act in that direction if it becomes necessary. And if, co- if confirmed, I would uh, commit to pursuing those options uh, to make clear, just as you said, that this kind of action is unacceptable.
0: Let me turn to the situation of the Sahel, which continues to be deeply concerning with violence in the region, fueling what UN agencies deem the world's, quote, fastest growing displacement crisis. Uh, As you may know, I am the lead sponsor of S615, the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership Program Act, which calls for a whole of government strategy for the Sahel. Do I have your commitment, if you're confirmed, to develop a strategic approach to the Sahel?
4: Chairman Mendez, you absolutely do. If confirmed, I would address the concerns that are outlined in your legislation, and I would do our best to pull together all the elements of the U.S. government capability to help support a better outcome in the Sahel.
0: Thank you. Now, Sudan's uh, civilian-led transition to democracy is in a critical phrase. Uh, The transitional government led by Prime Minister Hamdok has initiated laudable reforms over the last two years, but there are several intractable problems that need to be addressed. What, in your view, are the major obstacles to democratic transition and stability in Sudan?
4: Chairman Menendez, in my view, the the main obstacle to the transition in Sudan is helping the military understand uh, that there is a new way of of governance in the the country and that it is time uh, for the civilians to Remain at the forefront. That's the most important challenge we face, and it is incumbent upon us to do all we can to help them realize that transition. All
1: right. Yes, Senator Risch. Uh, Briefly, Ambassador Fee, I wanted to uh, talk about this one detail that uh, Senator Van Hollen mentioned, and uh, it prodded me into thinking about it some more. And that is uh, regarding the $700 million that. has been provided for the uh, uh, for Sudan as a result of the legal peace settlement. What what are your thoughts on how the U.S. Uh, should use that uh, use that amount,
4: R- R- Ranking Member Risch? I, m- I understand that we should use that money exactly for the purposes for which you appropriated it, which is to help consolidate support uh, for the transition, to help provide economic sustainability in Sudan so that there is popular support for this transition to, to continue. I understand there's frustration in the pace of disbursement and if confirmed, I would undertake to immediately look at that issue.
1: Yeah, a frustration would be an understatement. Um, the uh, uh, the mechanics that are in place, are you familiar with those or? Uh...
4: No, No, sir, I'm not as familiar as okay. I should be. Well,
1: we'll, uh, I might do the question for the record. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Well, thank you. Um, I don't want our other two nominees to think I have no affection for your work. Uh, I do, and I will be submitting a series of questions for the record. Um, for that fact, there will be a series of questions to all of the nominees from me and I'm sure from other members. Uh, I would urge you to answer them fully uh, and expeditiously so that the committee can consider your nominations at a business meeting. Um, with no other members before the committee, Uh, this hearing uh, will be adjourned. Uh, The record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow, which uh, questions for the record will be submitted. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.